Welcome to the Tech Leaders Talk Show, where we get to speak to those on the forefront of the technology world on a personal level. We dive into their careers, some of the challenges they faced and how they've overcome them. Please help others find the show by rating us on your favorite podcast engine. Hello, welcome to the Tech Leaders Talk Show. I'm your host, Ernst Pelser. Today we chat with Murray Goldsmith. Murray is a co-founder and COO of Sense of Security. Murray is also a public speaker, speaking at various security conferences around the world. Today we chat about the coronavirus and how it impacts security in various organizations. Murray, welcome to the show. Thanks very much for having me on board. As always, we start the show with just a couple of fun, quick-fire questions. You ready? Sure. Okay, good stuff. First car. What was your first car? Oh, I don't think we should be asking these questions, Ernst. These could be used as uh, phishing attacks against me for those secret questions on websites. <laughs> I'll give you a fake one. It was a Ferrari. Ferrari. Oh, very nice. Very nice. I'm assuming that's going to be your favorite then. Um, Absolutely. Then childhood hero or even a hero now and why? Oh, look, when I was a kid, He-Man and Masters of the Universe were uh, popular. So I'll go with, uh, with He-Man. And then favorite place and why? Favorite place? Well, probably just the rock pool down near the beach where I live. It's very, very peaceful. It's a good place to watch the sunrise. You can swim without having the waves crash over your head. I'd say that's the best place. Awesome. Awesome. Okay, great. So uh, I'm hearing you. You like the beach and like the sun? I like the ocean, but not so much the beach. Not so, <laughs> okay. so much a fan of the sand. <laughs> Okay, excellent, excellent. Right, so Murray, do you just want to give our audience a very quick background um, of sort of where you come from, how you got into technology, and why security? Sure. Well, I've I've only ever worked in the space of uh, cybersecurity, but before it was called cybersecurity, it was just called IT security or information security or network security at the time. I was a graduate in electrical engineering, and following my university education, was just exploring a few few options of you know what jobs a graduate could get and one one job around uh, firewall being a firewall engineer understanding how to deploy and manage firewalls in corporations where that were just beginning to connect to the internet sort of uh, got a bit of my interest i thought that security would be a good area to specialize in back at, at that time that was in 1999 that was my entry into this particular sector and I've uh, since then I've never done anything else other than be focused in security which is now called cybersecurity in the last few years okay and what's made you kind of stick around in this industry well it's um it's certainly something that's very interesting uh, there's always something topical that's occurring it doesn't really matter in relation to how being if it's moving from hardware centric to more software centric Security is always uh, an important element to give people and businesses and government confidence in the way that they go about doing doing business. That, to me, is the intrigue of security because I guess there was, there's always going to be some opportunities for people to try and disrupt the system to take advantage of it. And there's always opportunities for people to try and make things more secure and making those threat actors activities a little bit more difficult to conduct. So on the basis that security is always evolving, the threat landscape is always changing, techniques that attackers are using are always changing, and therefore the responses mm. that we need to apply need to change accordingly, makes security a very interesting 
area to operate in. Yeah, and it's a double-edged sword, isn't it? Because, you know, we, we always have to keep learning at a very rapid pace, but it also keeps, keeps the interest throughout. And it's something we can do, you know, until quite an old age, as opposed to hard labor or something like that. Absolutely. Turning the focus a little bit towards COVID and, you know, how that is impacting the security environment and companies and stuff like that. What are you seeing out in the market? What's the sort of new risks that it's posing and where do you see companies struggling? Not certain that any of the risks are necessarily new risks. I guess those risks have always existed. They just might have more focus on them today in the way that people are doing work. And attackers are always looking to have the lowest cost to deploy an attack with the highest yield. So they want the best, I guess, return on investment of their efforts in conducting some sort of cyber attack. Hmm. Most of the issues where attackers focus relate to social attacks against people because people are uh, in general very trusting and therefore are normally the, the weak point in you know the end-to-end transactions that occur on a, on a day-to-day basis in business. So we have already seen a rise in you know phishing type email scams. These are it's not that they're new. It's just that they're, they're becoming a little bit more prominent and the focus is more on, you know, topics and subjects that relate to COVID. So I know I've seen in our email system an increase in emails that are genuine emails where companies are telling you how to interact with them relating to disruptions with COVID. You know, is their contact mm-hmm. center still operating? Are they still processing orders? How to get your invoices paid through their accounts payable, etc. And as soon as emails like that are being sent out, attackers are looking to to get on that bandwagon as well. And so they're creating very similar emails, encouraging people to click on attachments, open forms, download certain softwares that people think are genuine because they're intercepting the way that companies are sending out genuine communications, but then they're altering them to be essentially an attack. So we're seeing a lot more social attacks where attackers are basically abusing the fact that people are now uh, business is disrupted and organizations are trying to adapt to changing business circumstances and attackers are taking advantage of that. Separately, so other than sending out emails which are you know leading people in the wrong direction, attackers are also taking advantage of the fact that organizations are rapidly standing up a remote workforce. Mm-hmm. And when you stand up a remote workforce, people are relying more on remote access VPNs, email in the cloud, accessing email from home environments or mobile devices, whereas previously they may have been generally doing their work at a desk within an office. So the general attacks here that attackers are doing is around authentication attacks against corporate environments. Now, those can be hosted email systems. You know, Microsoft Office 365 is a very popular hosted email platform. Mm -hmm. Uh, Google Gmail for corporate emails as well. Those all popular platforms that can rapidly be deployed to enable uh, a remote workforce to consume their product. Unfortunately, most organizations don't implement the reasonable security controls, which is, for example, multi-factor authentication. So attackers are now scanning the internet, looking for VPNs that have been published recently that that haven't been backed by multi-factor authentication, and that uh, automatically makes the attack surface much easier to get into from an attacker's perspective because all they have to do is guess or brute force a user's credential without having the the backup factor of a second factor of authentication 
which could be a hardware token or a software token, and that makes the attack much easier. So in summary, I'd say that attackers are increasing social-based attacks through phishing campaigns, be they email or phone campaigns, and also attacks against remote workers, mostly related to poor infrastructure controls around a lack of multi-factor authentication. Yeah, that's an interesting thing. It seems to be that a lot of customers are obviously struggling to to get their environment spun up to enable such a big workforce or such a large percentage of the workforce to now work remotely. One of the points that you touched in on, I think it was your RSA presentation, is about endpoint protection. One of the mechanisms is the encryption of remote or mobile devices, right? Can you talk to us a little bit more about that? Sure. Most uh, corporate workstation fleets are on the Microsoft platform. Most current version is uh, Windows 10 or uh, even the previous versions, Windows 7, have got built-in encryption capabilities through a Microsoft product called BitLocker, which doesn't cost any additional licensing costs to, to implement it. So there is no real excuse why any organization shouldn't be implementing full disk encryption on workstations and you know desktop computers and mobile computers such as uh, laptops. So today you can expect that most people who ordinarily would have had an office job had to go into the office, collect their laptop, possibly even their desktop, and take it home to work from home. Now, if those if those laptops and desktops didn't have full disk encryption enabled on them, the organization has immediately increased their risk profile because now they've got unencrypted machines in a domestic setting, which doesn't have as good you know, physical security in a domestic setting. So I guess the message is, is pretty clear. You should be encrypting using full disk encryption, both mobile devices such as laptops and also desktop computers. It doesn't cost anything if you use the Microsoft built-in product. There are third-party products as well. Many of the endpoint security products from the leading software vendors also incorporate full disk encryption as, a, as an add-on license. So the technology is readily accessible and available and it should be used because it certainly will help in protecting data at rest if any of those uh, computers are lost or stolen. So you talk to me about it. What are the reasons that you see companies not implementing disk encryption? Well, there could be a number of reasons. Firstly, historically, organizations probably didn't think it was necessary to do full disk encryption on a desktop computer because they didn't really consider it being mobile. However, desktop computers are also subject to, to theft because they could be stolen in an office environment. And today, they could the risk is now increased because security in an office environment is probably lower during the day when people because people actually physically aren't there. Building access controls might not be as closely monitored now because everybody is essentially at home. And so even the people who would ordinarily be looking after the, the physical tenancy of a busy office building might might no longer be there. Mobile devices such as laptop computers, which are inherently mobile, should have always been encrypted. But organizations, mm-hmm. again, probably just didn't necessarily have a focus on that. Sometimes there is a downside to encryption. It does increase the the number of help desk calls, for example, when people forget their passwords to log into the computer or if somebody leaves the organization and you have to be able to decrypt the computer to re, to be able to reuse it. So there is a small downside to implementing encryption. Those could have been the reasons why organizations may have found a reason not to, but we've been doing this for many years and in all the upside of encrypting computers far outweighs 
the, the small inconveniences that you have to manage. And there is today very good how-to documents on how to make sure that key management is is appropriately managed within an organization. The techniques to decrypt computers is very simple. And as long as you're following the procedures properly, there should be no increased overhead in a modern organization in using encrypted computing devices. Okay. With regards to the coronavirus and sort of the future of security and how organizations view security, how do you think this whole situation is going to change the future of security? Well, certainly I think people are going to become far more accustomed to working remotely and you know, having meetings through video conferences, phone calls, uh, rather than in person where they would have done that uh, previously. So I expect that when things sort of get back to normal, whenever that is, I reckon there will be a, a general acceptance that things are done over the internet. And so mm. it's going to increase uh, all forms of work that we do over the internet, whether they be meetings, presentations, sales, and all sorts of you know day-to-day business activities which may have previously been done face-to-face. So this is going to set basically precedence on having more robust security around all the things that we've mentioned in this discussion today. You know, remote access security requiring multi-factor authentication, better awareness around employees in terms of their susceptibility to phishing campaigns, encryption on devices when people are using them from domestic in, in environments. You know, all of those things, which again, they're not new topics. They're all existing activities that organizations really should have been doing today. I reckon they're just going to be far more prominent and the expectation that those things uh, be in place is going to be far higher on the agenda now than they have been previously. And if you think about it, there's like the one of the sort of, I guess, upsides with this whole COVID thing is that, you know, I think a lot more businesses will start looking, um, taking their BCP plans a lot more seriously because effectively, you know, that's exactly what's happened. A lot of companies has, have struggled to try and get the BCP, i.e. the remote working, i.e. an office is not available, you know, take that seriously and put it into practice pretty rapidly. Yes, I agree with you. I think, you know, most standards around the world require that organizations do some sort of disaster recovery or business continuity test on a, on a yearly basis. I reckon this one was an enforced BCP test for, for all organizations, whether they were prepared for it or not. And this was the opportunity now to identify any, any wrinkles that may have occurred, you know, existed in an organization's plans, which have would have otherwise just had a had a bit of a dust on them because they were never really tested thoroughly in the past. So yeah, uh, I guess organisations, particularly around their governance controls, their risk management philosophies within their business, are going to have to ensure that disaster recovery, the ability to to recover uh, from backups, stand up new environments, get people uh, remotely into office environments over the internet ensure that uh, telecommunication services like contact centers are still functional and people can use them from home. All of those things will be more prominent in the organization's business plans going forward. Now, one of the things that you touched on a little bit earlier, just going back to the remote working sort of environment now, with regards to what are some of the other tips that you would give, let's say, smaller organizations who don't necessarily have a CISO or a very strong security presence in place. Do you have any specific sort of tips for those type of businesses? 
in terms of facilitating remote work. Yes, yes, and keeping secure. Well, look, again, the, the, the tips and techniques are no different today than they have been before. The most important thing for any form of remote access, that's remotely accessing your business through a VPN, a firewall, or any form of remote access to get into a computing environment that's not where you are physically located, is to ensure that you have multi-factor authentication on that form of remote access. Multi-factor authentication today is very accessible. 20 years ago, it used to only be in the realm of large corporates and government. Today, you can download software applications that produce soft tokens. You can get hard tokens. They're generally functions that are available in most computing platforms. For example, Office 365, a very popular hosted email platform, has got built-in multi-factor authentication. But you have to turn it on. It isn't on by default. So you need to ensure that you are forcing multi-factor authentication. If you rely just on the defaults, you won't get the most secure configuration. So you've got to opt in to multi-factor authentication rather than opting out of it. It should be an opt-out model, not an opt-in model. Mm. Uh, but these platforms don't turn it on by default because they know it, it will increase the number of calls to their help desk and their support desk, etc. So my first tip to any anybody, particularly in small to medium business, is to ensure that multi-factor authentication is enabled for all forms of remote access and recognize that email today is a form of remote access. Email is essentially a unstructured database of sensitive information in the text, the body of the emails, plus attachments, you know, PDF documents, text documents, spreadsheets, and all that sort of stuff. So if anybody can get into your email, they get access to a huge amount of corporate information. That's Mm -hmm. generally how those email-born attacks occur, where attackers are, you know, fraudulently changing purchase order details or invoice details to redirect the funds into an alternative bank account. They can do that because they can basically sit inside the business's corporate email platform and they generally get access to that through poor access and authentication controls. Installing or enforcing multi-factor authentication will basically stop all of those attacks dead. The other things that are important for small to medium business and understand the important attributes around DNS security. So DNS is the protocol that manages the domain name for your business. So your business could be businessabc.com or businessabc.com.au. More of a technical area. And if the businesses are not familiar with DNS security, they would need to ask a technical organization to support them. But in general, they should be looking at three particular acronyms. Number one is SPF. The other one is DKIM. And the other one is DMARC. I'll say those again. SPF, DKIM, and DMARC. Now, all of those are technical parameters that can be set within your DNS records. And all of if you set those, and it doesn't cost anything to set them, they're free to set because it's just a text record in your domain. Mm. If you set those settings properly, then it makes phishing attacks against your organization orders of magnitude more difficult. So again, these are free or low-cost measures that organizations can do to to make their organization more robust. So the first thing is enforce multi-factor authentication on all forms of remote access, including email. The other one is improve your DNS security posture by doing a, a little bit more research on 
SPF, DMARC, and DKIM. And uh, you can send out to your to your listeners. I'll give a, a quick how-to guide on that that you can make accessible after the end of this uh, podcast. And, of course, ensure that your mobile fleet of computers is encrypted because if you lose it or it gets stolen, you don't want to lose the data that is on the, on the system. You want to only lose the value of the computing device, which is relatively mm. small compared to the value of the data. The other thing that I would recommend that all organizations uh, consider is phishing awareness training. Not only now as a one-off thing around this COVID, but more generally, users need to be more aware of the techniques that attackers are using when they send out emails that encourage you to click on links or open attachments. The attackers are getting more sophisticated. The language that they use used to be very discernible. You know, the language didn't have good grammar. The images that they attached in the the emails didn't reflect the company very well. I'd encourage all organizations to consider what we call phishing simulation, which is where you can get emails sent to your fleet of users. And this can be for small organizations, medium and large. All employees should be getting emails train them to identify the signatures of phishing type emails and the more they see and I can identify what the signatures are in those emails that that would lead them to identify that that's actually not a genuine email it's an email trying to solicit information from the end user mm-hmm. they are less likely to click those attack ones when they actually come through again there are many products on the market that help organizations to understand the techniques that that scammers are using and I can provide some information to the listeners as well for products that particularly homegrown Australian products that are very accessible in the market today. Okay, awesome, awesome. You you talked about DNS, which I kind of think is a really good segue into my next question. You talked about, I think, the RSA conference. You talk about domain squatting and how it's... just this morning, I actually read an article on how it's, it's become more relevant again in the current situation with the COVID-19. Can you talk to that a little bit? The terminology of domain squatting is not something new. Again, this is a technique that is that attackers have used for, for many years. Perhaps it's just becoming a little bit mm-hmm. more prominent now because social types of attacks are, are increasing in general. What domain squatting means is that an attacker is looking to register a domain name that is very similar to a genuine domain name but it's got a very small variation. For example, the attacker might register a domain name with only one change in one of the letters or numbers in the domain. So, for example, the attackers generally choose letters and numbers that look very similar. For example, a 1 and an L. So, if you register, if your genuine domain name has the letter L in it, L for Lima, and an attacker generates a domain name where they replace the L with a 1, when they send out that domain name to people, it could not be visually discernible, the difference between the 1 and the L, depending on the font in which the computer renders that particular URL. Mm. So they can, it, a 1 and an L is only one example. You could switch the position between two letters, for example, an I before an E or an E after an I, just visually the user might not discern the difference between the genuine domain name and the alternative domain name. So what attackers are doing is they're finding techniques on how to register a range of different domain names that are very visually 
similar to a genuine domain name, but it's a domain name that the attacker owns. And then they insert this into genuine email correspondence. So, for example, the attacker sends an email to somebody within an organization and they purport to be coming from the support desk. Now, if, if the recipient doesn't identify that it is not a genuine email, the recipient responds to the attacker with information about the company. Now, they could be giving information about internal systems within the organization, change tickets, invoices, purchase orders, you know, you name it. So if the attacker can insert themselves into genuine corporate communications, then they become part of essentially part of the fabric of the organization, even though they're sitting outside of the organization. Mm. And that enables them to take advantage to get users to change passwords, to disable multi-factor authentication if it was enabled, which enables the attacker to get into the tenancy to change the banking details on invoices and all of those other forms of attack. So basically, the domain squatting is just a technique that the attacker is using to insert themselves into end-to-end business transactions in a manner which is very hard for a user to discern that they're actually not talking with a genuine person they're speaking with, they're communicating with an attacker. And then you combine that with a compromised email system and then you've got a really, really strong uh, attack vector there. That's right. Okay. Yeah. All right. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for your time. I appreciate the opportunity to be on your show and uh, you can follow up with the users. I'll send you some information about domain name security and phishing simulations that uh, everybody can take advantage of and ensure that they're more secure going forward. Thank you for listening to the Tech Leaders Talk Show. If you've enjoyed this episode, please help us by rating the show on your favourite podcast platform. If you do, send a screenshot to our host, Ernst Pauser, on LinkedIn for a shout-out in the next episode. Please reach out if you have any feedback or questions.